We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33, we'll obviously finish 34 next week. And then the last Bible study for the year will be December 7th. Uh, so this week, next week, and the week after. And then we'll start Joshua in the new year. So uh, Deuteronomy 33 this evening, we're going to see Moses' final blessing. These are the last words of Moses. Uh, obviously, he didn't write Deuteronomy 34 because he was dead. So uh, Deuteronomy 33 uh, is uh, the last words of the mediator of the Old Covenant. So uh, we'll read the entire chapter, begin reading at verse 1. Now, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Mount uh, from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From, from his right hand came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, when the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. And as he said of Judah, Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him, and may you be a help against his enemies. And of Levi, he said, let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children. For they have, a, they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and a whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed of the Lord is his land, with the precious things of heaven, with the dew, and the deep lie beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun and the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its, in its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull. His horns like horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the peoples to the end of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Then Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. And of Gad, he said, Blessed is he who enlarges Gad. He dwells as a lion and tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the heads of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's wealth. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze. As your days, so shall your strength be. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, 
who rides the heavens to help you, and in his excellency on the clouds. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you, and will say, destroy. Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone. In a land of grain and new wine, his heaven shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of this second law, the book of the covenant uh, given to uh, the people of Israel on the plains of Moab before they enter into the promised land. Remember, this book is all about life in the land. It's all about the laws Israel was supposed to keep when it came to life in the land. And remember, Deuteronomy is the foundation for all the subsequent history. That's why we start with Deuteronomy and we're going to go all the way to Kings because Israel's failures are based upon what they would or uh, what they would not do according to these laws and all the curses would then come upon them. If they do what is right, then they do receive blessings from, uh, from on high concerning life in the land. So it is that covenant of works concerning life in the land. Salvation is never held out in the stipulations of the covenant. It's all about life in the land. And we come to the final section, which deals with succession and future, which is Deut- uh, Deuteronomy 31 through 34. Moses, the mediator, is going to die. Joshua will certainly lead them into the land. Uh, but the people must remember. The people must recall. The people must do what Yahweh has said. Uh, but Moses predicts they will not. In Deuteronomy 31, then he gives that sign against them with that song of witness. How all look at all, they, all that Yahweh had done for them but how they were going to forsake the rock, provoke the rock, and how the rock was going to seek vengeance against those who rebel against him. And so it was a bit of a negative Nelly-type passage from Deuteronomy 32. Uh, It closes on more of a high note here for us in Deuteronomy 33. Uh, There's much more blessing involved. There's much more encouragement involved. And really the same message that we see in 32 is the same we see in 33. Israel's God is the only God. Israel's God is the only one uh, that they ought to look to. And the main thing we see in Deuteronomy 33 is that he is the God who gives blessing. He really is the source from whom all blessings flow. So it ends on this encouragement. It ends on this high note before we have to deal with Moses' death. But even as Moses is about to die, he wants to remind the people, he wants to bless them and show them that God will be with them. Now, the problem that we can see in the text, or it's more implied from the text, is the problem of seeking safety and abundance in anything not Yahweh. Seeking safety and abundance in in foreign gods, rather than the God of the covenant, rather than God himself. Again, there's this implicit polemic here. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun. There is no one like Israel's God. That is, don't go after the God of Baals. Don't go after the Asherahs. Don't go after the Molechs. Because God is your God, and blessings flow from him. Now, we know in Israel's history, they would seek safety and abundance in foreign gods. And that's a misnomer, because there really is no safety or abundance in anybody but the God of Israel. Now, we could uh, extrapolate from that the fact that unbelievers, those not in Christ, those who have not believed, those who are in Adam, they seek happiness, completeness, safety, and security in everything not God. We find abundance, where we find blessing, where we find completeness 
is in Christ and being found in him. Having our sins forgiven, having our, uh, our hearts changed, having, our, uh, having our, uh, the fact that we are united to our Christ by the Spirit. All those things show forth that we have communion with God, who is uh, the one that we find true and absolute abundant life in him, rather than in ourselves or in this world. And so in Deuteronomy 33, Moses blesses the people by reminding them about the blessings of the king. Who is their king? Where do blessings come from? Who is it that protects them? He wants to emphasize God's goodness as their king, especially as Moses is going to pass. Yes, Joshua would lead them into the land, but he wants to remind them that even should Joshua pass, that God is still their king. God is still the one who gives them blessing, and they must trust in him. And so we'll look at these blessings under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the blessing of protection, verses 1 through 12. And secondly, we'll see the blessing of provision, verses 13 through 27. So the blessing of protection, verses 1 through 12. And secondly, we'll see the blessing of provision or abundance. Uh, I don't, you can interchange that if you want. The blessing of provision or abundance. So let's first look at the blessing of protection, verses 1 through 12. Now, I should say some of the nitty-gritties are difficult to understand. The Hebrew is difficult uh, to translate. Uh, so I'm just going to try to give an overview. If you want to read more on this, read Gil, read Kyle and Dalich. Those guys are all free online. Uh, but we'll hopefully see a bird's eye view of what's going on uh, in, these, uh, in these verses. And so the blessing of protection, verses 1 through 12. And notice in verses 1 through 5, we see the king who protects. But notice in verse 1. Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. This is similar to Jacob's deathbed blessing in Genesis 49. Certainly there are some differences uh, between Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. And certainly the unfolding history of Israel is taken into account. Uh, the focus in Genesis 49 seemed to be on the men and what they would do. Here the focus seems to be on the tribes because those guys are literally dead. And now they're the tribes that represent those men. Uh, so that's important. But also the focus seems to be on the land. Remember, Deuteronomy is all about uh, uh, how to enjoy life in the land, how to retain life in the land, how to uh, not be vomited out of the land. And in Genesis 49, there's some more blame that goes around. In Deuteronomy 33, it's just all blessing. Here's blessing. Here's goodness. Here's what Yahweh is going to do uh, for or, uh, uh, the blessings that Moses pronounces upon them. And perhaps the reason all the, the tribes are mentioned here is to show the fullness of the blessing upon the people, even though each tribe might receive blessing in a different way. God is still going to bless Israel as a whole, but the parts who make up that whole might receive different sorts of blessing, but it nonetheless is still blessing. It's one, uh, Moses wants us to see the fullness of that blessing that Yahweh gives to Israel. So he does so by Moses the man of God, the language of man of God highlights his prophetic uh, office. That is man of God in the Bible always refers to an office. A lot of people misunderstand that. They like to equate man of God with a godly man. Now, hopefully a man of God is a godly man, but just because someone's a godly man doesn't mean they're a man of God. 
Did you catch all that? Uh, basically, the point is a man of God is one who is called to an office. Moses was called to be the mediator. When it's used in 2 Timothy 3, the, that the, the, talking about the word of God, that the man of God might be equipped. He's talking about an office. He's talking about a pastor. He's talking about one who's been set apart. So man of God used in the scriptures is descriptive of an office. And Moses had a very special office. He certainly was a prophet, but he was the mediator of the old covenant. He was the one who spoke with Yahweh face to face. No, not literally face to face, but highlighting that intimacy that he and Yahweh had. And what's so sad is that even this mediator is going to pass away. Even this mediator is not going to enter into the land. He is going to, uh, uh, even though he is going to pass, he's going to pronounce blessing before he climbs up to that mountain, sees the promised land, and then dies. So Moses pronounces this blessing and notice what he pronounces. And verses two through five, again, the king who protects. And notice Yahweh who appears, Yahweh's presence, the king who speaks, verse two. And the, and the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. This is what's called the theophany. That is the appearing of God. Theos, God, Fanny, appearing. And usually in the Bible, it's not any old sort of thing of God, any sort old sort of thing. It, it's highlighting a sensible appearance by God. Certainly the burning bush is a theophany. The God appearing at Sinai is a theophany. I mean, you have Exodus 19, which is all thunder and lightning and fire, and the people are scared. And the reason we have uh, Exodus 19 is to make way for Exodus 20. When the law is given, when the king issues forth his decree, when the king issues forth uh, that, uh, the, 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 the Ten Commandments for Israel specifically, he wants to prepare them. Uh, uh, by showing forth the holiness of God. God is holy other. God is different than they are. God is above them in absolute perfection, but also in absolute purity as well. And so the blessing highlights that there is a king who spoke to them, the king who was with them, the king who spoke to them at Sinai. And the reference to Sinai, Seir, and Paran is just a broad reference to that region. That language is used in Deuteronomy 1 1. It's used in Judges as well and Habakkuk. It's all highlighting the fact that God appeared to the people at Mount Sinai. He came with, with his legion, he came with his heavenly hosts. Uh, he is the God of the heavenly hosts in, uh, uh, with, uh, with the language, and he came with 10,000 of his holy ones or his saints. That is, God appeared. Uh, to the uh, as he gave the law, and God also is still going to be with Israel as they entered the land. So we go from Sinai to Moab, and as the people entered the, into the land, it's the same God who appeared, the same God who will be with them and bless them. So the Lord appeared to them at Sinai. The Lord spoke His law from Sinai. The Lord showed forth His power at Sinai, and then notice. The king who governs through Moses. Notice in verse three, three and verses three and four. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded law for us, a heritage of the congregation of 
Jacob. I admit this is, again, this, these verses especially were very difficult to interpret. Who is his and what is your and what does that all mean? So yes, when it, when the language, uh, uh, when it starts with that word yes there, it's probably some sort of response from the people. That is, you know, God, uh, Moses saying, here is the Lord. Then verses three and four is the response of the people, emphasizing and affirming that God spoke through Moses. That is the language of, you know, as we see the heavenly hosts with the people at Sinai, the God of heaven is the God who worked in Israel's history, but also the one who has divine authority works through a human agent, namely Moses. And the people affirm that. Verse three, yes, he loves the people. God loves the people of Israel. And how does he show forth his love for the people of Israel? By giving them the law. That's hard for us to grasp sometimes, isn't it? But God did not give the law to Edom. God did not give the law to Moab. God did not give the law to Ammon. He chose Israel, not because of they were special, but because of God's decree and God's plan. And the fact that God spoke to them, and I know the, the, Israel, uh, the, the old covenant is a works-based covenant. We cannot uh, get around the fact that it was a gift that God gave them the law. The other nations did not have that law, but God gave them the law, and it showed forth his love for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints, probably referring to angels here still, are in your hand, Moses. They sit down at your feet, Moses' feet, and everyone receives your Moses' words. That is, God worked through Moses. That's what I think is going on here. I think that is affirmed by verse 4. Moses commanded a law for us. That is, the people are saying God spoke through Moses, the mediator. And remember, too, even at Mount Sinai, the people were so afraid, Moses, please go up. We don't want, to, we don't want anything to do with this. This is already re repeated or uh, recalled in Deuteronomy in the earlier chapter. So that's what I think is going on here. God is the one who appears to them. God gives the law as a sign of his love for the people as he chose them. He gave the law as a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. He loved them specifically. And that is further emphasized in verse 5. And he was king in Jeshurun. We saw that pet name of Jeshurun in Deuteronomy 32, 15. It just means upright ones. There's probably a pet name for the people of Israel, a nickname for them. It's only used four times in the Bible. Uh, once in Deuteronomy 32, twice in Deuteronomy 33, and once in Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 32, it's negative. That is, they... It's ironic. They were not the upright ones. They grew fat. They kicked. They became obese because they provoked God. Here it's used in a positive way in Deuteronomy 33. That is, he is the king over the special people. God specifically appeared to you. God specifically gave you the law. And God is specifically your king. Yes, he's the king of creation. But he specifically chose to be the king of Israel. When the leaders of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel together, he is the one who reigns. Exodus 15, he is the one who is king. Deuteronomy 33, 5, and Numbers 23. It's emphasizing Yahweh and a special concern for Israel. 
And verse 5, when the leaders of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel together. All the tribes need to remember that together because they're about to be scattered. That is, in the sense, they're all going to occupy different parts of the land. For the most part, they're all traveling together for those 40 years, right? Now they're actually going to be scattered scattered throughout the land. And so they need to be reminded, all of them, they need to be reminded who is their king when they're all scattered abroad in different parts. Now, I know it makes up a unified whole of Israel, but they're not all going to be together like they were when they were traveling in the wilderness. So he wants to remind them the blessings of Yahweh as their specific, special king, choosing Jeshurun out of all the peoples of the world. Then he goes on to highlight the people protected in verses 6 through 12. Now, as far as the order of the tribes, I have no idea, uh, but there perhaps perhaps some geography going on. But I think at the very least, I think what we see from Reuben to Benjamin, the emphasis seems to be on protection in battle. That seems to be a protect the language of protection for the people, even with Levi. Protection seems to be in order. Certainly protection comes up with the other tribes as well, but I think from Joshua to Asher, the emphasis is on the provision of the land. So that's why I think the difference is here. I don't necessarily know why that is the case, uh, but that seems to be the flow. So 6 through 12 deals with the people protected, and then 13 uh, through 25 deals with the people provided for. So we'll go through that now. So notice the first one in order, the first tribe, verse 6, Reuben. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. Now we know Genesis 49, Reuben was the unstable one. He was the firstborn, right? He was the firstborn that was supposed to have the birthright, the lineage, and the double blessing. But what does he do? He goes on a power play. He tries to take Bilhah. Remember, that just wasn't, wasn't just for sexual reasons. That was because Bilhah was Rachel's uh, um, um, maidservant. And because Rachel was the favored one, he thought, well, maybe I can do some sort of power play this way. So it wasn't just, uh, you know, yeah, he's unstable, but he tried to do that, but he doesn't work. A lot of the times we see him being a passive one. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed uh, throughout many times in Israel's history. He doesn't speak very wisely, but there's some benefit here, some blessing here. Let Reuben live and not die, nor let his men be few. Now remember, Reuben would possess the eastern side with Gad and half of Manasseh, uh, but he does still not receive the blessing. He does seem to fade uh, throughout the rest of Israel's history. He comes up every once in a while, sometimes positively in Judges and and 1 Chronicles 5, Uh, but for the most part, he does fade from the scene. But the blessing is, let him live and not die, and nor let his men be few. I mean, okay, that's... That's fine. They may not have the blessing, but hey, he's not going to die. He's going to live and he's not going to be a little bit, but he may not be much. So that's okay. So still a blessing. We don't need to, you know, make fun of him right now, but uh, it's still a blessing for Reuben. Then, then also we see the blessing for Judah. Now this is a little different from Genesis 49. In 8 through 12 of Genesis 49, we see the Messiahship promise. We see the one whose scepter shall not depart. Uh, again, you see this in the unfolding nature of Israel's history. 
the kingship has not come yet. And also the emphasis with Deuteronomy seems to be on the priesthood. That's why the priests, Levi, get a little bit more airtime. And Joshua also gets a lot of airtime. But Judah uh, here doesn't get the same type of airtime. The emphasis is once again on military might uh, and protection. Again, there's this anticipation for the people as they enter the land. They're going to need protection. Judah would be the one a lot of times would lead the way. Judah a lot of the times would be the one who presses on first. And so he would need a lot of protection as he does so. So hear, the, hear, Lord, the voice of Judah. Bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him. And may you help him against his enemies. So a little more uh, responsibility. And we know from, uh, from Genesis 38 that Judah would receive the line of the Messiah. From Genesis 49, he'd receive the line of Messiah. But Joseph would receive the double portion. And we'll get to Joseph in just a little bit. But here the blessing is that God would help him as he engages in his battle against his enemies. Now, if you're paying attention, there was one tribe not mentioned in Deuteronomy 33. Does anybody know which tribe was not mentioned? I had to cheat. I had to go back to Genesis 30 to figure out which one it was. Simeon is not mentioned. And perhaps the reason Simeon is not mentioned is because of his violence in Deuteronomy, in Genesis 34, uh, which is, Levi also has that as well, which is spoken of in Genesis 49. And eventually what happens is Simeon kind of becomes absorbed into Judah. You see this in Joshua 19. Uh, he's absorbed into Judah. He has towns with Judah. He goes to battles with Judah. And perhaps we could say Joseph's two sons, Joseph who receives the double portion, kind of fulfills, fills in uh, that at makes it 12. Uh, so that's probably perhaps why Simeon is not mentioned. He really fades from the scene uh, in Israel's history. But he's certainly still there. If you look at the, you know, if you look at maps, you can still see Simeon, but he's absorbed into Judah. But that's in Joshua 19 verses 1 through 9. So that's the blessing upon Judah. And then verses 8 through 11, we see the lengthy part uh, with Levi. Uh, and of Levi, he said, uh, he goes on to talk about the lengthy blessing, perhaps again, because Israel's future is tied to their worship. And the priesthood plays an important role when it comes to blessings. If Israel wants to receive the blessings, they need to worship Yahweh aright and do what he says. They need to remember Yahweh. And it was the Levites who were meant to teach them, or the priesthood was meant to teach the people so they were not forgetful. And all these things come up in the blessing that we see. Let your Thumim and your Urim be with your Holy One. The Urim and the Thumim were used to discern God's will. Perhaps one was the yes stone and one was the no stone. And so uh, the priesthood was important for determining what Yahweh's will was for a certain situation. And so that was needed. So let your Thumim and your Urim be with your Holy One. And your holy one there is probably referring to the Levites and the priesthood as a whole. Uh, who, and then he goes on to talk about whom you tested at Massa, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. And he goes on to talk about who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them. And further, just talking about the family. Perhaps what is going on here is that at Massa, Exodus 17, at Merab, Meribah, 
Numbers 20, Moses and Aaron as the leaders were tested. Moses and Aaron as the leaders were tried. And perhaps the implication seems to be is that just as Moses and Aaron uh, 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 had conflict with the people at those places, so too will the Levites when they have to deal with the people. That is probably perhaps what is going on. And perhaps as well, uh, Yahweh tests his leaders, uh, approves and tests them in these sorts of ways. And so that's probably why that's included here, to test their zeal for the Lord, because it goes with verse 9. So they were tested. Moses was tested. Aaron was tested. And then also the Levites were tested. And where do we see specifically the zeal of the Levites in Israel's history? Does anybody know? The giant calf come to mind. Who was it that slaughtered all the people that were engaging in wickedness? The Levites. The Levites there tested and showed their zeal for the Lord. That when Israel was engaging in apostasy, who was it that had zeal for the Lord? It was the Levites. Also as well, in Numbers 25, when they engage in the harlot tree uh, at Moab, when they engage uh, uh, in wickedness there, it was a Levite who made sure to atone for the people. So the Levites showed their zeal. That's probably what verse 9 indicates. Probably what has Exodus 32 and Numbers 25 in view. Who said of his mother and father, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children. For they have observed your word and they have kept your covenant. So they show forth their zeal for the Lord. They're willing to deal with their neighbors in order to honor their God. Now, there is some New Testament type language that we see from our Lord. Not that he says we go slaughter our family members, but I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 14. That is those uh, when someone comes to faith. There might be conflicts in the family if there's unbelievers in the family. Now, again, it's not as though we, again, we slaughter family members, but there's going to be conflict within families. Perhaps Deuteronomy 33 is in view. It highlights our allegiance to God above all things. Certainly, we need to love our families, so that we need to love our neighbors, but we must love God above all things. And the language of verses 8 and 9 seems to indicate that. They had this zeal for the Lord. So they had this, they discerned God's will. They showed their zeal for the Lord. But also notice they teach the law. Verse 10. They shall teach Jacob your statutes and Israel your law. So they must teach the people what the law says. They must teach the people what the law uh, what, uh, is required of them. They must know what God asks. Otherwise, they're going to do a poor job in honoring God. Before we can honor God, we must know how we ought to honor God. And so the, Israel, the priests were meant to teach the people so they would not forget God. All that language of Israel not forgetting in Deuteronomy 31 and 20, 30 and 29, and 20, that's all predicated on the fact that A, parents would teach their children and B, the priests would teach their uh, their people. And if they did not, the people would not do what is right. And look what happens in Israel's history. 
I mean, the priests don't teach the law. The priests don't fight back against the people. They just do what the people say. The priests then engage in wicked sacrifices. Hosea 4, Jeremiah 2, and certainly Malachi. Even after the exile in Malachi, they still don't get it. They were supposed to teach, but they did not. And then they're also supposed to be the ones who offer sacrifice. And a whole burnt, uh, they shall put incense before you and a whole burnt, uh, burnt sacrifice on your altar. Bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him, of those who hate him. They rise not again. So Levi plays an important role when it comes to protection. It doesn't matter if they have the strongest, mightiest men. They need to be right before their God in order to be able to go into battle. And certainly you see this as they go to battle I in Joshua. That is after Achan takes some of the, you know, the, uh, the gold devoted to destruction. Uh, he wasn't supposed to do that. They're like, ah, just send a few to I, it'll be fine. And they get beaten by I. They have to figure out what's going on because they did not do what Yahweh Said so, Levi plays a huge, crucial role for the people of God concerning life in the land, and so it was a blessing, it was a good thing, it was what they ought to do. Then, also, we see Benjamin as well in verse 12. This is in uh, he's also in 49 27. Uh, he's called the beloved, it's probably from Genesis 44 20. Isaac doesn't want, or Jacob doesn't want to send him because he's his beloved. Um, and so he is beloved and protected. Uh, the beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him, who shelters him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. He's protected by the Lord of war. So that seems to be the emphasis in those verses, the blessings of protection. Now, brethren, that is a blessing that the New Covenant people experience or a promise we ought to cling to that we sometimes forget. Certainly as a whole, God protects his church as an institution, does he not? I mean, Matthew chapter 16, he says, You are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I mean, I love that language. The gates of Hades is on the defense. The church is on the attack. I think we forget that when we see the world around us and we see it feels like the church is declining and we see, no, the gates of Haiti shall not prevail against it. God is with his church. Christ is with his church and he protects his church. He does so with the word that it might be established. I mean, this is what Paul says when he thought was going to perhaps going to be his last words to the, uh, the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. We know that's not the case, but he didn't know. But in Acts 20, 32, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Even before then, he talks about wolves who are going to come in. What is it that protects the people of God? It is the word of God itself. It is Christ who speaks through the word of God. And that's why we need men who preach the word of God. I mean, there are so many parallels uh, uh, from Israel's history to what you see in any time, really. If men do not preach the word of God, if men do not do what they're supposed to do, the people are going to forget 
and they're going to grow fat. They're going to grow thick in their if spiritually. They're not going to know uh, what who God is and how we ought to honor Him. And certainly, that's why we cling to God's word. We cling to the church as the pillar and ground of truth. So God protects His church by His word, but also He protects individuals. This is what we saw on Sunday night in 2 Thessalonians 3. It is what we saw in Deuteronomy 31 with Hebrews 13. That is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave us nor forsake us. Doesn't mean we're not going to have battles. Doesn't mean we're not going to have hardships. But God will never leave us nor forsake us. This is what 2 Thessalonians 3 highlights. He prays that they would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, but then he says, the Lord is faithful, who will, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The God will do that. God is faithful. God protects. God is with us. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that both, you, uh, both that you do and will do the things we command you. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, into the patience of Christ. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish. He will guard. He will keep you from the evil one. Isn't that we, what we pray in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Uh, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but keep us from the evil one. That is, what the, that is the prayer we pray, a prayer of protection. We ought to pray that prayer with faith and trust that God will protect us. For he is our God and we are his people. That is the blessing. That is covenant language descriptive of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. He protects those who are his, namely his people, and he is our God. So that's the blessing of protection. Let's then look secondly at the blessing of provision in verses 13 through 29. Again, the emphasis seems to be with these tribes, the emphasis is on land. There certainly still is conquest and protection, but the emphasis seems to be on the land. Isn't that what a king does? He provides a kingdom and he protects his subjects in that kingdom. And so here we talk, see his provision of that land. And notice it's with Joseph. Now Joseph does receive the double portion. We see that in Genesis 48. Uh, and also in Genesis 49, he receives a lengthy blessing. And notice it is connected to the land. Verse 13. Blessed of the Lord is his land with precious things of heaven with the dew and the deep lying beneath with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness. He's using creation type language to describe the blessings that Joseph has received. That's another emphasis in the song and the blessing is that the God of creation is the God of Israel and the God who is, was pleased to create this world and give blessings to the world is the God who is pleased to give those blessings to his people in a special way. That's why you have in verse 16, uh, sorry. Um, yeah. Verse 16 and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. All these creation-type blessings are given to the people whom God redeemed based upon his appearance to them in the bush. And remember, that was in its seed form. God had heard the cry of Israel in Egypt, 
and God then appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Also, a theophany, Yahweh appearing to them. And what's so interesting is that all of the, the, all of the, uh, uh, the language of God being the creator is then connected to the bush. And always, it is a marvel, isn't it? The burning bush. But when you consider creation versus the bush, I mean, it shows forth God's kindness to a specific people in this bush. The burning bush, yes, it is marvelous. But humanly speaking, it doesn't seem as extravagant as creation, does it? But that's the point. The God of creation is the God of his people who appeared in the bush to Moses. But nobody else saw, but God appeared to him. And it was there that we see God's promise to save them. And, and I am who I am. God would redeem them. He's heard their cries. He's going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, where Yahweh's redemption of Israel began, so to speak, with Moses. But all the blessings due and the deep and the fruit and the months and the ancient mountains and the everlasting hills and the fullness of the earth and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. And Joseph specifically receives that double portion. Second Chronicles 5 highlights this as well. Uh, the blessing, let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull. His horns like the horns of the wild ox, showing forth power is probably what that highlights. And together with them, he shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. So he receives the double portion of the land. He also receives might and power. And what's interesting here is there is a bit of a subtle push towards the Gentiles. Push the peoples to the ends of the earth. That is, he's going to continue to engage in his conquest to expand his land. We've already seen the promise of the Gentiles coming in in Deuteronomy 32, 43. We showed how Romans 9 through 11 alludes back to Deuteronomy 32 in many places to highlight that very thing, that the plan of God wasn't just for Jews, but it was for Greeks as well, or anybody who is not a Jew. That is, salvation was always meant to be not just for Jews, but for all who would believe in Christ, all who would look to him. And we see glimpses of that redemptive history, certainly more pronounced in Deuteronomy 32, but subtle here in Deuteronomy 33, 17. He shall push them to the ends of the earth. Then he talks about the two sons, uh, the, the double portion, uh, who make up the, the two tribes of Joseph. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Uh, remember, Ephraim was the younger one, so he receives the blessing in Genesis 48 when uh, Jacob or Joseph comes to bring the boys to his father Jacob, and we have the crisscross going on there. Ephraim receives the greater portion, Manasseh the lesser portion. Ephraim would be synonymous with the northern kingdom because it was the biggest tribe that is a blessing of God to them, although they would do terrible things, but it's still a blessing. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So God blesses Joseph in this way. Then notice God also blesses Zebulon and Issachar as well. This is, we see their blessing in Genesis 49, 13 through 15. 
Perhaps it's blessings of the daily round and blessings of the fact they wouldn't be excluded from the land. So rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out and Issachar in your tents. You're going out, you're coming in. There's that blessing. But also in verse 19, they shall call the peoples to the mountain. And perhaps there's also another implicit evangelistic call here. Perhaps as they engage, perhaps with the nations around them, they shall call peoples to the mountain. And what's interesting, there is perhaps a fulfillment of that in Christ, isn't there? In Matthew chapter 14, where does he dwell? In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. I know it's not Issachar, but still Zebulun is mentioned there. And also, too, that's the promise of the child who would come, and, or the sign of the child who would come in Isaiah chapter 9, who there would be a light that shines. Well, who's that light that shines? Who's going to bring the people to the mountain? It's going to be Christ himself. So perhaps even here, there is this implicit evangelistic thrust. They shall call the peoples to the mountain. And there they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hidden in the sand. So there is this prophetic aspect, possibly. They're going to call the heathen, certainly in Isaiah 2, one of the promises of the future household of God is calling them to the mountain, uh, calling forth heathen to the mountain of God. And again, that's where we see Christ who calls the heathen to the mountain in Matthew 4, Isaiah, certainly the book of Acts as well. But what's interesting is Zebulun and Issachar were landlocked. Uh, so perhaps they were seafaring, maybe they made their way out to the sea, but perhaps it could indicate too that they're not going to be excluded from the land. They're still going to take part of the benefits of the sea and the sand. So there, it's a all-encompassing land they get to partake of. And then we see Gad in verse 20, verses 20 and 21. Gad also takes the eastern side. Uh, we see how he's got a large land. It's a, it's a the breadth of the land. He tears, the, he dwells as a lion, or blesses he who enlarges Gad, he dwells as a lion and tears the arm and the crown of his head. Uh, he provides the first part for himself. That is, he takes, they get the eastern side, that's what they want, but that doesn't mean they're not going to help take the rest of the land, which they very much do, uh, because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. He came with the head of the people. He administered the justice of the Lord and his judgments with Israel. So he continued to work with the people, even though he took the eastern side. He still gives that help. So that's Gad. And we have Dan. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's wealth. He shall leap from Bashan. Perhaps the, what it's highlighting is there's going to be future growth promise. So the land is going to continue to grow, seems to be the indication the land is large, the land is full of abundance, uh, the land protects for those who go in and out, but the land also is going to grow as well. It seems to be what is going on here. A lion's wealth, a lion, a timid youth, and Bashan was nowhere near Dan, so it's perhaps leaping towards that or leaping from that. I don't know all the metaphors, but that seems to be what's involved here. At least the point is, there's going to be future growth. And then Naphtali, verse 23, highlighting the satisfaction of the land. Oh, Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. The land shall satisfy. 
And then Asher, we see the abundance of it. And of Asher, he said, Asher is most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Riches, sandals shall be iron and bronze. Riches, and as your days, so shall be your strength. So all of that seems to highlight the blessings of the land, those tribes there. And then verse 26 through 29, we see kind of a bookend with that first poem concerning Yahweh and him as king. And here we see the king who provides, verses 26 through 29. There is no one like Yahweh. That's again the emphasis, verse 26. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to help you and in his excellency on the clouds. Don't worship the Baals who they thought that the pagans thought rode on the clouds. No, it's, it's Yahweh who rides upon the clouds with power and might. He is the one who gives blessing. He is the one who gives abundance, not the Baals. He, the eternal God, the mountains may be ancient, but God is more ancient. That's just a crass way of saying he is eternal. He is the eternal God who is your refuge. The one who is from everlasting to everlasting is the refuge of his people. And you are underneath the everlasting arms, protected, held, and kept, even as we deal with enemies. Again, he protects us even as he's going to protect the people as they engage in battle. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, destroy. He is their refuge in life and he is their refuge in war. Craigie says, Israel would be a a victorious army, not through military genius, but because God, a man in battle, Exodus 15, would be fighting on behalf of Israel. Israel would be protected in battle by the shield, which was God. And Israel would be granted victory by the sword of God's presence. Enemies cringing in terror would be trampled underfoot by the victorious people of God. He is their protector, not Baal. He is their shield and refuge, not Molech. It is Yahweh. And he goes on to highlight how is there's no people like Israel because of this in verses 28 and 29. Not only does Israel have God, which no one is like, but also Israel is a people like no one is like. Then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone. In a land of grain and new wine, his heavens shall also drop dew. They shall dwell in safety and abundance. And notice, they are blessed because they are chosen. Verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you and you shall tread down their high places. Israel was a unique chosen people whom Yahweh redeemed from Egypt. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. Now, Israel does not respect and appreciate that privilege for they go after other gods. Now, thankfully, dear brethren, in the new covenant, We, the church, are that blessed and chosen people saved by the Lord. Who is like the church? 
That should cause us to stop and ponder and consider. That's the church whom Christ loves and died for. And it's the church whom Christ gives spiritual blessings. And all those who are part of the church, there are spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, heavenly blessings that far exceed the temporal blessings that Israel could have had and that did enjoy for a time. We have spiritual blessings that we truly do not fathom, that we have presently now. That's the point of Ephesians 1. He's blessing God for all of that. Predestination is one of them, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Adoption as sons, that we can call upon God as our Father. That is a blessing. The fact that he provides for us day by day, that is a blessing. The fact that he gives us an inheritance that, we are, that awaits us, that is a blessing. The fact that we are redeemed in Christ, that is a blessing. The fact that our sins are forgiven, that is a blessing. Notice all those things are present. Forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons, all those things are present now for us. And the spirit given to us. That is a blessing and the spiritual, the spiritual blessings that he gives to us, that we may have life and have it abundantly. An abundant life is not riches of this world. Abundant life and happiness is found in God. And it's found in God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are you. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved? By the Lord. Present blessings, but also future blessings that await us. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, there is an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. We have present blessings now, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment of the future blessings when Christ comes again. Brother, we have blessings that we truly do not grasp, do we? We have the promise of blessings that we truly do not fathom. We may have nothing in this world. We have blessings forevermore in Christ. Wright says, there is something beautiful in the fact that all the dark chapters of curses, challenge, warning, and melancholic prediction, these last words are so rich in warmth, hope, and comfort. And brethren, the reason we have future blessings it wasn't because God looked down the corridor of time and saw that we would do something good. It wasn't because there's anything good within us. It's because of God's good pleasure to choose. God's eternal decree to save and give his chosen race, his royal priesthood, all that they need for salvation and blessed abundant life in him. It pleased the Lord to choose and to bless. He cho chose old covenant Israel and made them uh, the special people out of all the nations of the earth. They failed. And then Christ comes, who is the true Israel, and all those who are redeemed in part of the new Israel in him through faith. It's because of nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Christ who chooses and Christ who blesses. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, let us pray.
But Lord, our God, we truly do not understand the blessings that we have from you. So often, oh God, we look at all the things we do not have rather than recognize the gifts that we do have. And so we pray, oh God, that we would praise you and honor you for the protection that you give to us day by day. For the knowledge of the fact that we are forgiven in Christ, that we have the spirit who indwells us. And even if we sin, oh God, and we will sin, we have a advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you, God, for your protection from the enemy. We pray that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Help us to be watchful from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And thank you, God, that we are watchful triumphantly in Christ, who has disarmed all principality and power, has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, uh, triumphing over them in the cross of Christ. Thank that all our trespasses are nailed to the cross. And thank you, O oh God, that your people, the redeemed, your, your, uh, the ones who believe, uh, is not because of anything good within us, but because of your decree. Thank you, O oh God, for election. Thank you, O oh God, for predestination. And thank you, O oh God, that you predestined many men of every tribe, tongue, and nation, a multitude that no man can number, to be numbered in the Lamb's Book of Life. And thank you this because of your goodness and your mercy and your kindness toward us. And we pray that this would cause us to praise you and honor you and to recognize the blessings that we have. We're also thankful, O oh God, for the blessings of abundance, the blessings of provision, temporal blessings, O oh God, but even more so the heavenly blessings that await us. Thank you, O oh God, even for the heavenly blessings we possess now. But we do long, O oh God, for the time where we will no longer sin. We do long, O oh God, for the time where we will no longer suffer. We do long for the time where we no longer go through sicknesses and illnesses, O oh God. And thank you that just as you begun a good work in us, you will complete it in the day of Christ. So we ask that you give us encouragement, give us strength as we go into the world, O oh God. Help us to know your love for us, that there really is no God like you, the God who loves his people and Christ who died for his church. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.